Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Keenan Culler. Keenan, how is it going? My regular co-host here on this podcast. It's Whoa. so exciting to see you. I just want you, I just want you to wait until I edit this episode. I Dang love it, Christian. It. There will be two seconds the of The disrespect man. right off the top of the show. Christian, I'm so sorry. I didn't we didn't plan this, but you know, it's good to it's good to be back. I've been on the show once before. Considered a co-host after one episode. I like it. Christian, again, apologies, <laughs> but you know, it is what it is. I had plotted in secrecy to announce that Christian was no longer the regular co-host of this podcast. And I've already been foiled by editing. But of course, I'm Scott Lentz. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius, and we are joined by our good friend and occasional guest host, Keenan Culler. As Keenan mentioned, he's been on the show before for our billion-dollar episode. Keenan, it is good to have you back. Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Now, on that billion-dollar episode, I did pick the Disney remake of Aladdin as my film to talk about, and you still invited me back, so thank you. Uh, thanks to the listeners for giving me a second chance. I'm going to try to bring it a little bit stronger tonight. We Okay, okay, but here's the thing, Keenan. Written and directed by Guy Ritchie, who did The Gentleman last... No, I think just directed by Guy Ritchie, who did The Gentleman. So, I have that in my heart. Hey, Scott, so. you want to dive into the controversy around The Gentleman right off the top of the show, or should we wait a little bit later? Because I know we've we've had conversations about this before. We can spare our discussion, discussion of the racism in The Gentleman for after our relitigation of Christian's take on Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, maybe we'll do a bonus episode on that. But tonight, we are here for a most excellent reason. We get to talk about the Oscars. Let's go. We're all excited here. Keenan has joined us to talk about the upcoming 93rd Academy Awards. It's Oscar season, baby, and I am just high on the energy of it all. I know it's all a sham in the name of commerce, but also it, it gets me happy. So, Christian, Keenan, how are you feeling about the Oscars coming up this Sunday? I don't think there's any movie here. There were a lot of highs for last year. Like, I really loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really loved 1917. Um, now, I I don't think there's any movie, as, as, as much as I've already given my rankings of these movies, that I love quite as much as those. But also, like, I hated Joker, and I don't think there's a single Joker in this list. So there's there, there's a good, the, the average, there's a good average in this list of nominees. Hey, Christian, did you just say you hated the Joker? Uh, yes. Yes, okay. I did. I'm going to – let's jump over that hurdle. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I would hey. call it a hurdle, Keenan. Maybe we should talk about talk about your hurdle there. Here's <laughs> the here's the thing, guys. Look, we're recording this on 420, and I am high off the movies. I can't believe it. The Oscars are right around the corner. Sunday night, we're almost there. Uh, I think all things considered, with the delay, with the pandemic, with COVID uh, over the last year, I think we have a pretty solid list of uh, of nominees, all things considered. I was kind of worried, um, you know, last fall, like what's going to drop, what's coming out, will they even have enough quality uh, films to to make this worth it? But I think we do. And I would agree. I would agree with Christian. I don't think anything really reaches the high of uh, some of the films last year. I did love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
uh, love nineteen seventeen and some other ones. But yeah, I still think we have some solid uh, solid choices. I look forward to talking about them. Some of them, as is the case with every. Uh, Oscar season are crazy overrated and I sometimes scratch my head and say did did I watch the same thing that uh that other people <laughs> did that somehow exactly. loved kind of like you guys with Joker I'm guessing right <laughs> maybe a little bit in general I do agree that this year is a pretty good year for the movies and and for the movies chosen to receive Oscar nominations Keen and I agree that I was a little concerned that with all the delays from COVID, we may not get the same amount of excellent movies nominated. But of course, the Oscars are not always known for their flawless track record. And that considered, I agree that this maybe isn't the best Oscars year of all time, not the best selection of nominees. But in my opinion, there's not a lot of stinkers that were nominated here. There's a lot of good movies and a few great movies but a lot of good to work with. And I can honestly say, looking at the slate for Best Picture this year, that there isn't a single movie nominated that I actively disliked, and a few that I really, really enjoyed. So I agree. You know, not the best Oscars year, but still a good one, all things considered. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to... I'm gonna go off the rails slightly. Uh-oh. And, and oh no! 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 Not the not 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 the way I normally hey, do. Hey, Christian, we live in a society. That's fine. I will tear <laughs> it down. Now, I wanted to. We're going through eight major categories: uh, the two screenplay categories, the four acting categories, director and picture. I wanted to throw something out there, out of the. You know what? Let's look at best animated. I just wanted us to touch on that for a quick second, because if I'm not mistaken, all three of us have the same number one animated movie that was released last year. Do we all have Soul? Because that would definitely be my choice. Yes, that's mine. That would okay. be my choice. Okay. I wanted us to start off happy before we keep going, <laughs> but I, I will say, I think that Soul is a lock in this category. I don't think anything has a chance of beating it, and I'm okay with that. I love Soul. I think Soul did good. Here's the thing. If the award was given for one 15-minute segment, then the winner would be Onward, no question, because the last 15 minutes of Onward took my heart, threw it in the air, and sliced and diced it. I was emotional. I was. It hit so hard that it almost made me rethink the entire movie, because as I was watching Onward, I was like, this is good. This is like pretty decent Pixar, nothing elite, nothing terrible, just kind of right in the middle. But then the end happened and I was like, wow, did not see this coming. So I thought the end of Onward, no exaggeration, probably hit me top three most emotional moments of the year of of 2020, I would say. I would agree. I liked Onward quite a bit. And so much of what I heard about it going into it was that it was low tier disney not that good very much a retreading of previous similar movies but i actually liked it a lot both in the winning performances from chris pratt and tom holland but also that ending as discussed you kind of know where it's going for most of the movie but it does one thing with the ending that i wasn't expecting that really really moved me and i i thought it was a big success where i I heard it was basically just going to be a bland disney retread and i actually liked it quite a bit 
It's almost like Onward was so predictable for its entire runtime and seemed very formulaic, and I think it lulled you into the sense of feeling like you knew exactly where it was going at the end, even though it was still decent. But then the end, they totally pull the rug out from under you, and, and, and they totally Ryan Johnson subvert your expectations, and boom, we got hit hard. And I think it, it just, again, it just made me rethink the whole movie. Like, maybe I should have given it more respect, uh, you know, as I was watching it. And I could tell you, I didn't get fully caught up with this category, unfortunately. I haven't seen Over the Moon, and I haven't seen a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. My, a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon is so Apologies to the filmmakers. But a movie that almost swiped my top animated film of the year award was Wolfwalkers, which I caught up with in anticipation of this show, and I was a huge fan of. Having recently rewatched A Secret of Kells, or The Secret of Kells for this show... I was excited to check out Cartoon Saloon's latest release, and man, Wolf Walkers did not disappoint. thought it was utterly beautiful and another timeless story, treading some familiar beats for animated movies, but doing so in really unique and fresh ways. I was a huge fan. Um, did you guys have a chance to see Wolf Walkers? I have. Yes. I also saw it. I thought it was beautiful to look at, but left me a little empty as far as the story. It seemed like it... It, it seemed like we're going to talk about this a lot. At least I am tonight. It seemed like one of those movies that like never ended. It just kept going on. I'm like, I know this isn't a four hour movie, but it feels like it's just going on and on. So maybe it would have been better for me if it was like, you know, a 20 minute short. But we all love soul. We did all love soul. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's go to, you know what? Let's start with best supporting actor. Let's just start with best supporting actor. All right. And I have you, both of you sent me your picks for these eight categories and I compiled and saw which one a consensus pick was highest rated. Christian, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and just explain our behind the scenes process for those listening along just so you can kind of share how we put this together. As stated, we're going to be doing eight different categories. Seven of those categories have five nominees. Best picture has eight. We rank those one through five. If we have not seen them, then we did not rank them. I took all of our rankings and compiled them into who is our overall consensus pick. Maybe none of us chose it as number one in that category, but it was still all of ours number two. And so it would make that category. I'm going to say what that quote unquote winner is. And then afterwards, we will give our list and say who we chose one through five or one through eight and then do some and i'm gonna emphasize quick hits of passion and hatred before moving on to the next category does that sound good and scott i am looking at you i'm looking at my time and i'm looking at you just because i have a tendency to use extreme amounts of detail when brevity would be preferred doesn't mean that i would do it on this show christian best supporting actor our consensus pick was daniel kaluuya now, the five nominees are, I should have done that first, but Sasha Baron Cohen for Trial of the Chicago 7, Daniel Kaluuya, Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr., One Night in Miami, Paul Racy, Sound of Metal, and Lakeith Stanfield, Judas and the Black Messiah. Collectively, Daniel Kaluuya was our number one. Well deserved. All right, Keenan, give us your list. Okay, best supporting actor. I love this category. Uh, this is this is the category that always has like we always have the most fun with because I feel like we get the most like showy performances and the most fun a lot of times. Uh, number five, I had Paul Racy, Sound of Metal. Number four, 
I put in Lakeith Stanfield, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number three, I got Leslie Odom Jr., One Night in Miami. Number two, I got Sasha Baron Cohen, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And number one, I got our consens- consen- how do you say that word? Consensus? Consensus. Consensus. Uh, winner, Daniel Kalua, Judas and the Black Messiah, who I thought killed it. Maybe we'll get into a little bit more of his uh, performance here, but... My number five seems like we're a little bit some in some ways reverse, Keenan. My number five was Sasha Barry Cohen. Number four, Leslie Odom Jr. Number three, Lakeith Stanfield, who I still contend, as many others do, should have been in the leading actor category, but I digress. Number two, Daniel Kaluuya. And my number one of the year was actually Paul Racy. What? My number five was also Sasha Baron Cohen. My number four was Lakeith Stanfield. My number three was Paul Racy. My number two was Leslie Odom Jr. And my number one was Daniel Kaluuya. So, okay. We all are at least positive on Daniel Kaluuya. Very much, yes. Yes. Does does anyone Is anyone passionately wanting to give a spiel about Daniel Kaluuya before we go into why Scott and I were not the biggest fans of Sasha Baron Cohen? Yeah, I, I will definitely heap praise on Daniel Kaluuya real quick if I can. I think, I mean, this is this is a pretty obvious statement, but to me, this was so, like, transformative. This performance in Judas and the Black Messiah was the definition of, like, an actor becoming a character. Like, you felt it. He was, like, living it, breathing it. You felt like he was a different person. You weren't watching someone acting. You were watching the actual historical figure on screen. Um, you know, we talk a lot, especially in the best supporting category, a lot of times we get these showy performances where, like we said earlier, they're fun, but it's a little bit like, look at me act. Um, I feel like in the case of Daniel Kaluuya, he, he just was so natural. He was the character and he really, I I don't feel like he ever had any big, like, look at me, look at me moments, even though the character by definition was kind of larger than life. He had a lot of great speeches. He had a lot of great uh, moments to shine, but I don't feel like it was a, like, showy you know um over the top performance i thought he just became the character so that's my praise for daniel kalua i like that you specifically say it's not a showy or over the top performance because it's certainly a big performance he has some stirring speeches that he gives but there's a difference between going big and earning it than just going over the top and hamming it up and trying too hard and I think Kaluuya is definitely deserving of all the praise he's gotten this award season. He's widely considered the consensus pick for this award when the actual ceremony rolls around. And if he wins, I wouldn't have any complaints. He's an incredible actor, and I'm looking forward to seeing many more of his movies. I know Get Out was his big breakout performance, and he's made a lot of great movies since that. But definitely some awesome work. My My only quibble with him is that the actual Fred Hampton was 21 years old during much of the events of the movie. And when he was killed, he was only, again, 21 years old. And in a weird sort of way, I feel like they could have gotten even more provocative by casting an actor closer to Fred Hampton's actual age because Daniel Kaluuya is 31 or 32. Might be wrong there. But regardless, quibbling with the details aside, an incredible performance. And I'm, I'm a fan. Obviously, he was my second preferred from these five options. Why don't you talk to us, Scott, about why you chose Paul Racy as your number one pick? Paul Racy, for me, as for so many people watching Sound of Metal this year, was a complete discovery late in his career. He's been acting for a long time, but never really had a breakthrough performance. And 
when I thought about these performers, I didn't have any problems with any of them. I like all of these performers. I liked all of these movies. And when I thought about Racy versus Kaluuya, one of the big reasons that I ultimately chose Racy as my preferred from these five options is that he just had a couple scenes that stuck with me as I thought about my favorite performances of the year. And I won't spoil it. I know that often the Oscars are the impetus for someone to check out these movies. And so if you haven't seen Sound of Metal yet, I wouldn't want to spoil it at all for you. But there's a scene he has with Riz Ahmed's character near the end of this movie after Riz's character makes a choice that Paul's character disagrees with that would have been my scene of the year if we were going over scenes of the year. And I think it's the two performers. It's the strength of those performances that have made that scene stick in my brain. And Racy is able to say so much with so little and communicate so much with his face, communicate both pain and a complete commitment to his principles. There were just moments like that throughout Sound of Metal that I think it would have made the movie worse if it wasn't Paul Racy in that role. And so I wanted to give him some love I, I know he's not the front runner for this award. Who knows? Something could happen on Sunday, but wanted to give him some love. He was uh, a slight preference for me over Kaluuya. So I, I wanted to give my number one spot to Paul Racy. And uh, Keenan, before we move on, why don't you, you have Sasha Baron Cohen the highest at number two. Why don't you talk about your love for Sasha Baron Cohen in that one? Well, you know, this kind of goes back to the, I guess this is the opposite of what we were saying with uh, Daniel Kaluuya. This is kind of more of a showy, fun, like look at me type performance, but I feel like it perfectly fits like the era, the vibe, um, the, the, I guess just the character he was portraying. I just found him incredibly watchable, incredibly entertaining, and it was almost like, just when you thought he was a clown, just when you thought he was kind of one note and and didn't really have a lot of depth, he would hit you with these dramatic moments where whether he was having some kind of disagreement with uh what's my what's why am I blanking on the guy from uh, Fantastic Beast? What's his name? Uh Oh, Eddie Redmayne. Thank you, Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, whether he's having these like philosophical disagreements or just principal disagreements with Eddie Redmayne um or even some stuff in the courtroom. I just thought he was always keeping you on your toes as to what he was going to do. And I like as the movie went on, you realized he wasn't just this one note kind of jokester clown. He actually had depth. And I just thought Sasha Baron Cohen was perfectly cast. Like I, I thought he just nailed what Sorkin was going for. So I, I, I will say this though, having listened to your end of the year episode, can we, are you in agreement with me that the best supporting actor from that movie was Mark Rylance though? Oh yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. As the lawyer, yeah, I loved him so much. If we were going to talk about people who could have been or should have been nominated, I would have brought up Rylance as well. I know you two are a the fan snub. of that performance. He got snubbed. So. <laughs> Another performance where a actor much older than the real-life figure was cast. That one is more egregious. I'm not sure if the actual age is, but Abby Hoffman was significantly younger than Sasha Baron Cohen was to the point where when this movie was first put into pre-production, when it was originally a Steven Spielberg project, he was or Baron Cohen was brought up as the person who could play Abby Hoffman like 10 years ago. So obviously worked out well for him, but another weird historical but circumstance. Real quick on Rylance, didn't you feel like, talk about transformative, like it took me a while to recognize who he was. He was so like different than anything I've ever seen him before. I was just like, who is that? Why does this guy look so familiar? And when I finally realized who it was, I just, I loved it. I loved how like he just slipped into that character so, so well. 
All right, with that, let's move on to Best Supporting Actress. Now, those who have been nominated, Maria Bakalova from Borat Subsequent Movie Film, Glenn Close from Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Colman from The Father, Amanda Seyfried from Mank, and Yoon Yoo Jung from Minari. Our consensus pick was also pretty simple here. It was Yoon Yoo Jung from Minari, the grandma. Yeah, Keenan, start us off with your list. Best Supporting Actress, number... Well, I guess I don't have a number five because I didn't see Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy. I missed that. Apologies to Ron Howard. I'll get you next time. I'll watch Solo again to make up for it. Number number four, I got Maria Bakalova from Borat, which I can't wait to talk about. Number three, Olivia Colman, The Father. Number two, Amanda Seyfried from Mank. And number one... Uh, Yo Yu Jung, I think I pronounced that right, from Minari. And that, to me, is a no-question, unanimous number one. <laughs> for, for me, anyway. All right, Scott. Keenan, I'm excited because our lists are so, so similar, except for one major thing. So, number five, I had Glenn Close <laughs> and Hillbilly Elegy. Got a problem with nominating bad movies most of the time. No offense to Glenn Close. So, she was number five. Number four, I had Olivia Coleman in The Father. Number three, Amanda Seyfried in Mank. Number two, I had Yoon Yoo Jung from Minari. And number one, I had Maria Bakalova from Borat, subsequent movie film. Cannot wait to dive into that. Christian, what was your list? Number five, Glenn Close. Number four, Amanda Seyfried. And number three, Maria Bakalova. Number two, Olivia Coleman. And number one, Yoon Yoo Jung. So maybe we should start with the Maria Bakalova discourse. <laughs> yeah. I lo- I liked her. But the thing is, it, okay, I'm, I, I will start it off. I thought Maria Bakalova did a pretty good job in Borat. But the thing is, is that she was there to kind of give a sort of caring nature to Borat. When Borat doesn't need to have any, it, Borat's a, it's a prank movie so why is marie so why is there a character here who i'm supposed to care so let me cut in here let me cut in here because she's my number one i think that does a disservice to both bakalova and tutar as a character because in the first movie ken devishan came along as azamat who was his who's borat's producer and partner in absurd shenanigans including running naked through a hotel lobby And he needed someone to pick up that mantle, his partner in crime, almost literally. And Maria Bakalova, playing Tutar, starts off as this character who is coming out of this bizarre culture. Obviously, it's a parody and is so dependent on her father and becomes a strong and independent woman of her own. But all of those character bits aside, Maria Bakalova, I think, just blew me away with how committed she was to not only keeping up with, but occasionally outpacing Sasha Baron Cohen in these shenanigans as Borat, including the most famous scene from that movie, going alone into a hotel room and getting kind of weird with Rudy Giuliani. And in terms of awarding performances, you have to consider a lot of different factors. And Part of it is difficulty of performance and the difficulty of behaving in the real world as a character is so high. And I came away with so much respect for Maria Bakalova. I I loved Yoon Yoo Jung too. So it was hard to make that, again, that one-two decision. And again, I am someone who our consensus 
we we had were they're number two for me and i had just chosen someone differently as the number one spot so i was a huge fan of maria bakalova wanted to sing her praises but keenan i'm concerned because i know she was on the bottom of your list and i uh, <laughs> i feel like you're gonna come after me with apologies to you, Scott, I, I hear you. I thought she was fine in the movie, like Christian said. To me, this is literally the same exact thing as like nominating Kathy Bates for like Waterboy or like Isla Fisher for like Wedding Crashers. It's like, yeah, they she was funny. Like that, I mean, she was there. She was funny. She did some jokes. She like, you know, I, like to me, it's like, are we going to nominate the cast of Reno 911 for like Golden Globes? I, I don't understand where this praise is coming from. I like the fact though, like to me, this is the pick where it's like the Academy's trying to be like, look guys, we can think outside the box. We can, we can be hip. We can be cool. Like we're going to give her some love. And it's, it sounds like a huge insult to her. So I feel bad about that. Cause again, she was good, but it's just like nominated for an Oscar, like for, I, we're going to talk to Scott about your point about performing in the real world when we get to the screenplay. Maybe that's when we can kind of dive into Borat a little bit more. But uh, again, I, I didn't dislike her in the movie. It's just so random to me to like pick her out of a hat and be like, let's give her an Oscar nomination. The Academy doesn't award let's comedies Let's talk about enough. our love for Yoon Yoo Jung. But let's do that. I agree. Scott's so mad. Scott is fuming right I'm sorry, Scott. He's fuming right Y'all now. Y'all have no love for Maria Bakalova, but that's okay <laughs> because Yoon Yoo Jung is incredible in Minari. Such a highlight from that movie. Uh, I just ranted about Maria Bakalova, so I want to hear you guys go off more about uh, Ms. Yoo Jung. Uh, Keenan, take it away. Are you sure, Christian? I, I've, I feel like I've been talking a lot. I, I know what category I'm going to be talking on. Don't worry. Uh, here's the thing. I feel like I cannot wait to talk about Minari more when we dive into the actual movie. But as far as her performance as the grandma, I I can't put into words how much I loved it. Like it was without question one of my favorite performances of la- like of the year of any of these Oscar nominated movies. I loved her so much. The 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 transition and the switch that that happens midway through the film, um, which obviously we're not going to spoil, but it's just jaw-dropping and and you understand why she brought so much energy and life and passion to the first half of the movie and to see the transformation she goes through it's just wild she was such a breath of fresh air when she came into the movie I thought she elevated it and she just every scene she was in um I loved it funny heartbreaking real uh, I even sent you a clip of one of my favorite scenes of uh, of any movie. Uh, it's so funny. The relationship between her and her grandson, who is very skeptical of her at first, very like, why aren't you acting like a regular grandma? It's just great. And one more thing I'll say real quick. I love the idea that we get this fairly traditional Korean family, at least on the surface. And so we, when we hear that the, the grandma is going to come live with them, we immediately think she's going to be this rigid by the book, you know, like kind of keep everyone in line. So when she shows up and she's the exact opposite of that, it's so awesome. I just love like flipping that on its head and kind of going against what our expectations were for her character. To, to, I mean, add on to the love, there was a, at the very end before the, the, the big event happens that changes the entire family. When she looks at kind of what she's done and you can see this this vulnerability in her eyes this 
child that's inside of her who doesn't really understand what's going on. It's heartbreaking. So to have her be such a comedic presence, but also such an intense family anchor. Yeah, give her everything. Give her money. Give her money to do more. She's like in her 70s. I can't believe that we've just discovered her now. Give her the $100 that she took from the church collection plate. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) She gives the kind of performance for for me, a, a dumb white boy in America, that makes me want to go discover more of her performances because obviously she's had a long career acting in her home country in South Korea. And... I don't know if this is her English language debut or or not, but obviously one of her first performances in mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. And of course, Minari didn't even start as a mainstream film. It was from A24. It's more of an indie film, both by design and by marketing, etc. So it's a kind of movie that makes you want to see more of her work because she's just so wonderful in this movie. And I, I totally agree with everything that both of you have said so far. I don't want to belabor the point, but she gets so many great lines and has so many great scenes, both in the, the silliness of falling in love with Mountain Dew and talking about the bedwetting incidents, but also in the legitimate dramatic scenes as she has some health complications arise or as she talks about Minari, the plant, of course, that that gives a title to the movie. Just a wonderful performance. And again, she's the front runner in this category. And if she wins, I won't be disappointed in the slightest. Yo, what's up, guys? Knowing that you guys are talking about the Oscars, couldn't help but call in and give a little plug for what I thought was not only the best picture of the year, um, what should win the best picture, but what was my favorite movie of the year. Um, Minari. Not only was it beautifully shot, um, it has a great score. I I think it does a great job in storytelling and has a story that revolves around relationships and ideas of identity, um, whether it's a husband and wife and... You know what happens when a husband wants to pursue a dream he's always had and his wife starts losing faith in him or a father-son relationship where the the son has a heart condition um, and can't do things that a normal kid can do Um, or even in my favorite relationship the grandmother and grandson relationship um, where a grandson is a second generation immigrant who, you know, has never been to his home country. What does that look like when his grandmother comes to live with him? And yeah, just wrestling with identity. And I think they do such a good job with it in this movie. Um, it just feels honest. And I think bringing in the comedic elements, um, I just really resonated with the characters and felt I was able to put myself into those narratives um, and really connect deeply um, with the movie. So yeah, I think it should win Best Picture for sure. I thought it was the best film of the year. Um, And we'll see what happens this Sunday. Okay, let's move on to Best Adapted Screenplay. The five categories are Borat, Subsequent Movie Film, The Father, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. Now, all three of us chose the same movie as number one. Really? Nice. yeah, the father. Good job, guys. We did it. We did it. We f- we found consensus. Got him. Scott, why don't you start us off with your list this time? I would love to. So at number five, I had The White Tiger. At number four, I had Borat's subsequent movie film. 
Number three, I had Nomadland. Number two, One Night in Miami. And at number one, we all know, The Father. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go next. At number five, I had Borat, Subsequent Movie Film. At number four, One Night in Miami. At number three, The White Tiger. At number two, Nomadland. And at number one, The Father. Okay, I did not see The White Tiger, so I left that off my list. But at Honestly, number f- not bad. Not bad. I recommend it. But but keep going. I uh, Are you surprised that this got nominated for screenplay but nothing else? I'm surprised it got nominated over Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, I was surprised it got nominated at all. Obviously, it was my, my fifth choice. And again, a good movie. If you're looking for something to watch, you can do far, far worse than The White Tiger. But not something I was particularly enthusiastic about. Interesting. Okay, so number four uh, for best adapted screenplay, I had Nomadland. Number three, I had Borat. Number two, I had One Night in Miami. And number one, The Father. So The Father, number one for us all. Christian, you are you are our resident writer. Would love to defer to you here and share why you had this at number one. Because in terms of dementia movies, of which there are many, this one is good. <laughs> And the and the screenplay is what is what does it now. If I I am a big advocate that pacing is one of the most, it, it's one of the most important things the movie has to have. The first time that the characters change, just actors, and we kind of have no clue what's going on, and Anthony Hopkins says, "Where did those chairs come from?" And I'm thinking. Where did those chairs come from? Those chairs were not there before. It's it's so it's such a sad movie. Like The Father is not an easy watch. But to keep me on my toes, I think very well. I mean, thankfully I do not have dementia, but my grandfather had it and died from it. It, it it's like how can you match that vulnerability of where like how do you know what's going on around you? Like, when will the next time I see someone, I forget if it's my daughter or not, or I forget what it is that's going on, where I am. Were those chairs always there? Did she actually move to France? I thought she had a different husband. And I just felt bad for him the entire time, which was the point of the movie. And I felt confused, but not in a, I don't know what's going on, more in a, this is just a taste at what some of these people could be going through I, I thought structurally it was incredible and this is one of the few times that i think for a play to transition from stage to screen worked i think it worked very well now i know that you guys are more favorable on one night in miami than i am i don't i, I think that was a transition that i could tell was a play first not not this one this one i'm like like damn this is good i totally agree i Honestly, The Father was the last Best Picture nominee that I watched. And part of that reason was because I assumed that it would just be your run-of-the-mill Oscar bait, focus on somebody with a serious illness and their family. It's going to be hard. You're going to cry a little bit, and it'll be over. There will be good performances, a good everything, but it's just kind of Oscar baity. But I was really Maybe Blown Away is too strong, but I like this movie so much more than I expected to. And Christian, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, too, lost a grandparent to dementia. And I've thought a lot this year about how I wish that I could have been there with uh, with him and with my family during his struggle. And 
just saw so much of him in this movie, which touched me more than I expected to with the father. And the structure of the movie is so fascinating. And I saw a review recently that compared it to a puzzle box movie, which we talked about Memento recently here on Cinema Drip. Is Memento is considered a classic puzzle box movie, one where you're trying to figure out what's going on the whole way through, and at the end it all comes together. And The Father, where it could have gone Oscar Beatty, sort of fit into that framework as this puzzle box. You're trying to figure out what's going on. And it it was so fresh and lively, despite being a topic that's covered so frequently by Hollywood, by Oscar movies, Oscar bait. And I enjoyed The Father as a movie so much more than I expected I would and was moved by it as well, just with the connections to my personal life and understanding that struggle a little bit more. Keenan, you know, this is your number one as well. What were your thoughts? I, I really can't think of a movie, and maybe if I did a deep dive, I could come up with a few options, but I really can't think of a movie that has ever put me into the mindset of someone and what they're going through like this movie did. A lot of times when you look at a movie where, whether it's like dementia, whether it's like people just having breakdowns, like something like Black Swan, where Natalie Portman's kind of losing it, it's like there's all these like camera tricks and flashes and like things where they're hallucinating and it's like very flashy and like look look at what it is. This was so under, like so subtle, like all the character changes, all the little like details that were different. It was genius how they made you feel like you were Anthony Hopkins as the viewer. It really made me empathize with him because I was just as confused as he was. I mean, talk about putting the viewer into the main character's, like, mind. A mind that is deteriorating. You feel that same sense of frustration, confusion. Wait a minute, what was that? Who is that? And... like the screenplay was everything. I mean, Anthony Hopkins obviously crushed it, but I feel like the structure of the movie is what made it special. And like you said, Scott, I went into this thinking it was going to be a run of the mill Oscar bait type movie that was just there for Anthony Hopkins performance. I was not expecting it to go as hard as it did and to be as unique as it was structurally. The structure of the movie was everything. It's what made it memorable. And I'll, I'll definitely be thinking about it and recommending it for, you know, a long time to come. It kind of reminded me, was there a movie about 10 years ago called Amour, like a foreign film? Yeah. Maybe not 10 years, but in the past decade. I thought that movie, from my memory, maybe hit a little harder emotionally only because it was a husband and wife kind of aging together. They were both like kind of going through that. But this movie structurally was way more like putting you into that place, you know? Um, And I I think I like this better for that. Something that both The Father and Sound of Metal do, which maybe we'll talk about Sound of Metal more once we get to original screenplay, they both immerse you in the main character's perspective. And that's something that is so hard to do when it comes to memory loss and something that Florian Zeller and Christopher Hampton writing for The Father did incredibly well. Any other thoughts on adapted screenplay before we move on to original? Both of you have One Night in Miami listed as two. I'm, I would be okay if you guys, uh, it's my four, but if you guys want to praise One Night in Miami. I just think One Night in Miami did an excellent job of capturing the nuance of black perspectives, even, even from four people who could be considered activists, those who want change, capturing the, the differences and the disagreements that they can have. I think a deficiency of social media is obviously that 
black Americans, even ones who are pushing hard for change, can get lumped into one group and getting to see the perspectives of Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and the ways that Cassius Clay, soon to be Muhammad Ali, and Jim Brown especially could bring to that was was really interesting and educating for me. It's a movie where I loved the performances a little bit more than the screenplay, but I thought that the screenplay was really well done and although I haven't seen the play, really well adapted as well, helping that stagey material become cinematic. And maybe that's more praise for Regina King as director, who she did not get a nomination. Maybe she should have, but I I did like the screenplay quite a bit, especially considering this bunch of nominees. Yeah, the the real real quick on One Night in Miami, I feel like this is the movie where there's nothing to hide behind. It is all like dialogue, characters talking, just sitting in a room. It almost feels like the type of conversations that you would have I mean, not us, but you know what I mean? Like you'd have with your friends just sitting around talking about life, talking about big things, small things, everything in between. And again, there's just nothing to hide behind. It was all the uh, the conversations, the dialogue. Uh, I don't think this was like the most subtle movie in the world, but that subtlety is not everything. Like sometimes I don't mind if a movie just kind of throws out big topics and ideas and and points of view and then lets me kind of marinate on them and I feel like that movie did that after this was over I had so many things I wanted to talk about in so many different perspectives that I didn't know were out there especially between these four iconic figures we're going to talk about another movie coming up here that I like the idea of we might look at this this you know group or this this uh ethnicity or whatever and kind of think that they all might agree and when you see disagreements in that and different ways of approaching things i think that's fascinating so i uh i was a big fan of that let's move on to best original screenplay then all right for best original screenplay the oscar nominees are judas and the black messiah minari promising young woman sound of metal and the trial of the chicago seven our consensus winner is minari uh scott start us off with your list so at number five i had the trial of the chicago seven Number four, I had Promising Young Woman. Number three, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number two, Sound of Metal. And at number one, I did have Minari. At number five, I had Judas and the Black Messiah. At four, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. At three, Promising Young Woman. At two, Sound of Metal. And at one, Minari. Okay, for me, best original screenplay. Number five, I had Sound of Metal. Number four, I had The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Number three, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number two, I had Minari. And number one, I had Promising Young Woman. Let, we'll, let's discuss Minari and Promising Young Woman from this batch. I think that we will get to discussing the others as we, well, we'll get to discussing these again, especially in two categories, but what is it about Minari that transcends just the traditional family drama for us? Because it's just a family drama. I guess I'll start off with Minari. One thing that I love about this movie, I love so much. I just watched this yesterday for the first time, and I I was legitimately blown away. I love this movie. Um, I love that it kind of... I don't want to compare it to Parasite because I know that's too easy and obviously it's nothing like Parasite in terms of, of narrative, like what's actually happening. But I like movies that can make you think and ask questions and discuss and talk about big issues without shoving them down your throat, you know? And I thought this was the textbook example of that. You're giving us these characters that we love 
And you're not like nothing felt too forced, nothing felt too preachy, nothing felt too like, oh, like look at these. You know, you could in in lesser hands, I feel like this movie would have been a thing where it's like, look at all these hillbillies, like kind of, you know, uh, abusing this family and like all this stuff. And I, I thought that was handled very well. There was definitely some things like that, but but it felt very real and it felt more like some of the misunderstandings from like the people in Arkansas with the Korean family were more just like ignorance, not like blatant. Like you look at something like Green Book, right? Or like something that's very uh, on the nose. And I just like how this movie felt very real, very natural. Um, I don't know if I really explained that too well, but that's the thing I took away from it. It kind of had that laid back, like effortless quality that a lot of Bong Joon-ho's films have. And uh, I thought that's this reminded me of those to be honest characters we love not telling you how to feel telling you what to think but more leaving you with questions and things to figure out on your own dora keenan i think you did a good job describing your affection for the screenplay good work thank you and christian i would actually disagree with you that this is just a family drama because to me i I said that uh you know to just spur (laughs) on converse like this is more than a family drama but at its core it's a family drama Yes, at its core, it is a family drama, but I th- the things that it does well, differently from typical Oscar-nominated family dramas, is that, number one, it's an immigration story. The parents who have immigrated from Korea to the States and whose children are growing up in the U.S. and are struggling between being Korean and being American, bringing over grandma who is living in America for the first time. There are new, there's, there is new complexion added to this family drama than typical Oscar-nominated family dramas because of the Korean-American perspective. And what I particularly loved about this story is the semi-autobiographical quality that Lee Isaac Chung, as both writer and director, brought to it. Because there were so many moments throughout this movie that you could imagine as either ripped directly from his childhood that he presented or inspired by his childhood in some way maybe it didn't actually happen but he felt that it could have or he was remembering and just was inspired by the memory or was creating these characters and connecting them with his experience and was able to come up with funny things or moving things have you to happen that that for all we know could have happened to him or not and i think one particular scene that feels so perfectly within this balance of could it be memory or maybe it's not is the scene (laughs) where uh the character standing in for him who of course is david played by alan kim the young boy growing up in this family gives his mother pee or his grandmother pee to drink (laughs) which is a really really funny scene obviously grandma thinks it's mountain dew she's fallen in love with mountain dew since moving to america and it's that kind of ridiculous scene that could be completely invented for the movie or is is so so ridiculous that it has to be true and could have been ripped directly from his childhood. I can totally see that being a memory of his that he incorporated into his movie. And it becomes a point of bonding for them because she, of course, advocates for him not to be punished for that obscenely disrespectful thing. <laughs> and... It's one of those small details that put a smile on my face as I was laughing at how funny it was, but also, again, moved me in the ways that this this young boy and his grandmother are growing closer together. And 
the memory aspect of Minari is what's so beautiful about that movie. And the combination of memory and potentially just cinematic and fictional is handled so, so well. And that's why it, it was my number one screenplay of the year. These aren't, it, it does something right in terms of immigrant movies, that it doesn't write them as immigrants. It writes them as people who are dealing with stuff because they're immigrants. I, uh, Keenan, are you on Letterboxd yet? No, I should be. Come on, bro. You should Come be. on. Tisk tisk. I, I, I am going to read for my review because I, I like what I said. There's a reality and a depth here, a beauty and a tenderness. Some movies are made with sledgehammers. This one seems to have been painted with the lightest of strokes. It looks that is like a painting. Genius. That's a, that's 100% accurate. I, I like movies that are made with sledgehammers. I like movies that are painted. This one's a movie that's painted, and I think it was painted well. All right. I am interested, Keenan, in hearing you speak on Promising Young Woman's screenplay because it is currently tied with Trial of Chicago 7 to win this Oscar. Really? Yes. Is that kind of the uh, the prediction? It's it's one or the other. I feel like it's funny because me and Kaysen, uh, my younger brother, we saw Promising Young Woman together in the theater, actually. And it was an experience. I, I can't think of the last time that I saw something that multiple times made my jaw drop. And not in like the, uh, maybe not in the literal sense, but just in the sense that me and Kaysen kept looking at each other, just shaking our heads like, what? I love how twisty this movie is. And it never feels like big in your face twist. Like here comes the twist. Here's the big musical cue. Here's this. It all just kind of flows. And it's like, it's a very, it's a very twisty turny movie. But at the same time, it's almost like, going against expectations going into this i thought it was going to be a super pulpy almost like birds of prey like looking at the camera wink wink like look how neon soaked and like over the top and oversaturated everything is and it it maybe leans into that a tiny bit it dips its toe in that but i don't feel like it ever i feel like for the most part it feels like it does exist in a very real world and I think that's why when real things happen, especially the end of this movie, which hands down is one of the most unexpected things I can recall. The end of Promising Young Woman, I almost hate saying that. Maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't want people to have any expectations going in. But the end of this movie, you will not believe it. At least I didn't. I could not believe it. I was sitting there just staring at the screen like this, this isn't happening. And it was. And I love, I just, maybe I'm not putting it into uh, as eloquently as I should be, but I just love the balls of this movie, you know? Like to, to kind of go to the places they do and not make a big showy, like, look at me, look at me. It just kind of happens and, and that's it. And now we'll let you talk about it. And, and what did you, why do you think things happen the way they did? What are you taking away from this? Again, let us talk about these things without shoving them down our throats. And, and what I love is that, this movie is so unexpected. At times, it doesn't seem real. And I, I I agree with what you're saying, that real things are happening. At times, it feels like these are made-up people, with the sadness being they're not. I mean, the frat boys at that, uh, at that bachelor party are all real human beings whom we can all picture. The relationship that Carrie Mulligan has with Bo Burnham and the reason... Uh, it, well, like the thing that happens later on in that relationship when she finds something out 
are all very real despite how like tuned up they are and i think that the screenplay balances those very 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 well it's also beautifully directed and the the thing is it doesn't again going back to not telling you how to feel it doesn't really tell you how to feel about a lot of things like the bo burnham character and the choices he makes and stuff like we know how carrie mulligan feels but I don't think the movie is trying to tell us that is the right way or wrong way. I feel like it's more just giving us these things to chew on. Like me and Kaysen talked about this the, for a while after it and, and thought like who was right, who was wrong, what's the right course of action, what would you do? And I love things like that, you know? I love things that, that let you figure it out for yourself. Um, also, one real quick thing before uh, Scott dives in. I think as far as me saying it feels like all of Promising Young Woman happens in the real world, they had so many opportunities where they could have gone big. They could have gone showy. They could have gone like, look how outrageous this is, what she's doing to these guys, what's happening. And they almost never did. Every single thing she does it always it like set you up on the trajectory like this is going to be crazy she's going to do x y and z she's going to do this and it always at the at the conclusion of all these little things she was doing it always felt pretty grounded where it's like okay whether it was the who like the dean's daughter in her car the scene with McLovin, like all the stuff where you thought, oh my gosh, like it's about to get crazy they always reeled it in and they were like no 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 like we're going to keep it as grounded as we can for a story like this. I had Promising Young Woman rated lower on my list, number four out of five. And the main reason being, I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. I think it's a great Me Too movie. And I know we're three men here on this podcast, and I would defer to some more feminine thoughts on it. But in general, I do think that it is a great Me Too movie capturing the the anger and the danger of this moment and it does that very well very stylishly brought to life and i just had some problems with the screenplay in particular the ending which we won't get into detail about but i just i wasn't sure how to feel about it and even though i don't outright think it's bad i i did walk away with a lot of questions about it not sure if it went as as well as it could have. And so because of those questions, I just had it rank lower on my list. Again, I don't think this is a bad screenplay. I ultimately liked the movie and, I mean, had a great discussion with my wife about it because we watched it together. So really good opportunity to, to watch a provocative movie and talk about it, which what more can you ask for? So number four out of five for me, but no complaints as, as to your opinions. My name is Jordan. My favorite movie this year was Nomadland. Uh, I think uh, one of the big things I took away from watching Nomadland was it was a very refreshing experience. Uh, just going along for the ride with the main character and kind of what she's going through and her uh, experiences. Uh, it didn't feel like uh, a plot was being like forced upon the the watcher but you were just kind of discovering um who she was and what her story was and just kind of living a uh, a part of her life along with her uh which I thought was a really refreshing experience and why I think it was the best movie of 2020 for me at least <laughs> now let's move on to best actress okay 
The nominees for Best Actress are Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andra Day in The U.S. vs. Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand in Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Here's the thing. I put down two winners for this because both Scott and I have the same number one, but Keenan, you haven't seen that movie. Yeah, and I your... think this one, this one I should just sit out, honestly, because I haven't, I've only seen two of these. But, and I mean, don't worry, we can just talk about these two people who there's a lot to talk about here. And your number one was both Scott and I's number two. So let's, it's, it's a tie between Viola Davis and Carrie Mulligan is what I wrote down. Who knows what you would have said if you'd seen the movie. Now, I will start us off with my list. My list was Viola Davis at one, Carrie Mulligan at two, Vanessa Kirby at three, Frances McDormand at four, and Andre Day at five. Uh, Keenan, you've seen two? Yeah, I've only seen two of these. So I put Frances McDormand at two and then Carrie Mulligan at one. And Scott, what's your list? Uh, our lists are very, very similar, Christian. We just swapped a couple. So at number five, I had Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman. Number four, Frances McDormand in Nomadland. Number three, Andre Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Number two, Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. And at number one, Viola Davis in Mark Rainey's Black Bottom. Now, given that, let's start with the one that we've... No, actually, let's start with Viola Davis, and then we'll go into Carrie Mulligan. But I, I will say, there is... I, I mean, Scott, I might let you take the brunt of this, but there is a... Mm, Viola Davis is doing a lot in this movie. Keenan, let me sell you why you should watch this movie. Yes. <laughs> let, let, let me do this. Uh, what have you seen Viola Davis in? Or what's the last thing you remember her being in? The last thing I remember Viola Davis would probably be Widows. But I'm okay. sure she's been in something since then. But I was afraid you were going to say Suicide Squad. No, oh. what, are, what are we, some kind of Suicide Squad? <laughs> <laughs> Viola Davis has to me like top two, top three commanding voices out of any actor. I hear her voice and want to see what she's saying. Now she is, she comes into this movie like a third or a fourth of the way in. She's like not in the beginning of it at all. And she is portraying this musician based on a real musician from the 1930s or 40s who is being told to record and she is being basically a diva about recording and it goes into she is working with white producers and she is putting up this front of i know that you want me and i know that even though you quote unquote have more power than me right now you need me for my voice and so i am going to do everything in my power to make sure that until you stop needing me i am in control there's a vulnerability there and a strength there she is killing it and she's not even in that much of the movie but even when she's not there i'm wondering when she's coming back scott what do you have to say about this movie i loved ma rainey's black bottom keenan it was my number three film of the year i was a huge fan wow. particularly on the strength of chadwick boseman who i'm sure we'll get to in viola davis and in a year filled with high profile films about the black experience in America brought to life by black filmmakers and obviously performed by black actors. I think Viola Davis gave one of the best performances of the year, particularly in how Ma Rainey had to negotiate the space between 
having power and influence and of course still being in danger because she was a black woman in the 20s <laughs> in the early 20th century of america and ma is a fascinating character because she knows what she means to the people she is working for in that she means money because people will buy these ma rainey records and yet she knows that she's expendable if ever those records stop selling and it's a a terrifying place to be and she walks that line between having and wielding the power that a superstar or a diva has while also knowing that it is on the precipice and that at any moment should she step out of line from what the dominant culture expects that she'll lose it and it's just, she's just a fascinating character and uh viola davis's performance is brilliant and and bringing that tension to life and in addition, not just playing her as this big, brassy, loud, mean woman, but by bringing all of this nuance to life, it, it could have been such a weak performance in an average stage adaptation. And instead, her great work, especially when acting across from Chadwick Boseman and those two great performances, elevated this material so much. And... Man, it's such a shame that we lost Bozeman. I'm sure we'll get to him in more detail, but praise God, we still have Viola Davis, hopefully for many more performances to come because just great work in this movie. You guys sold me. I uh, I got to watch this now. Plus, it's only 90-some minutes, so you can squeeze it in on your lunch break, practically. Very quick. Very <laughs> what quick kind of lo- hey, what kind of lunch break do you think I'm taking? <laughs> Dory, mine's only 45 minutes, so I couldn't fit it in, but... <laughs> I'll have a half hour. Oh, man. That sounds good, though. I It's definitely... It's something when this movie first dropped, I really had no interest in it. And then as award season came around and I started seeing the buzz, I was like, I really need to watch this. So I, I still do. Scott, I want you to kick us off talking about Carrie Mulligan. Again, my number two performance of the year. No problems there. I think Carrie Mulligan is a great actress. She's had a lot of awesome movies that she's been a part of a lot of great performances some of which i haven't even seen um whether they've received other acclaim or i've just heard talk about them that i want to see uh, i haven't had a chance to see them yet but the work of promising young woman i think is really really strong bringing to life this traumatized person who of course is asked to represent so much of 21st century womanhood of of being in this me too moment but knowing that when when you or someone you know is a victim of sexual violence that there's still a massive chance they won't be believed a a huge chance that they won't be considered with the seriousness that they need to be considered with and the trauma that she is dealing with both in the wake of what happens to her friend and and then in the loss thereafter is really challenging to, to bring to life and also make her a, a fully fledged person who has her own wants and desires. It isn't just built around this loss, but is a, a, a fully fleshed out human. And I think Carrie Mulligan gives a great performance, allowing Cassie, her character, to have highs and lows, to be believable at her best and her worst. I I just think it was a great performance, and, and I would love to hear you guys speak a little more on it. Keenan does... Does her performance remind you of Rosamund Pike and Gone Girl? Yeah, it. Th- I did not even think about that, but yeah, that's a really good comparison. It's funny you mentioned another actress because I was gonna say this seemed like the, a type of role that maybe someone like Michelle Williams would have taken like ten years ago. 
like they kind of have similar traits, similar characteristics where I could imagine uh, Michelle Williams kind of slipping into something like this. But I think, Scott, you nailed it with everything you said. I think that her performance was one of the best things about it. It shows how something, how an incident that can mean nothing to so many people can stick with you and turn you into a completely different person after you go through it. And I feel like we got glimmers of her past life, of who she was before the incident, and who she is now. And seeing her family just want her back, seeing like kind of how she's so shut off from everyone, um, I thought she nailed it. I think one thing, going back to the realness of this movie, which I know I keep harping on, she came across super confident and she came across like a character that would be like a take no shit kind of just like you know uh but those moments when you saw the vulnerability and you realize she wasn't some superhero she wasn't some harley quinn she wasn't like you know some uh, she almost presented herself like that like she was larger than life she was over the top she was like uh, doing all these uh tactical things like you know getting revenge on these guys but you you realize as the movie went on, she was just a very like vulnerable, hurt human being that was kind of using this as like a mask, as a facade, like the the nail pot, like her whole like everything, her whole front was kind of just that. It was a front, and I feel like uh, those moments with Bo Burnham when you feel like she was vulnerable and she was starting to find her old self again, it was beautiful. So I. I I can't say enough. I thought she was fantastic. And definitely, I'm not too experienced with her other roles, so I thought it really blew me away from that standpoint. I have nothing really to add. I think that you also said it correctly. It's when that vulnerability hits that that we've most got it going on. I think part of what's even informing my thoughts on this, too, is when you look at the Oscars in particular, you wonder who's won before and who hasn't. And obviously, Frances McDormand gives a great performance in Nomadland, but she's already won multiple Oscars, so I don't feel as bad if she loses. <laughs> and I'd be more excited about Viola Davis winning her first in this category. Obviously, she's won for supporting, or Carrie Mulligan winning her first Oscar overall. Um, also want to say, shout out to Andre Day. Great performance in a not-so-good movie in terms of the United States versus Billie Holiday. Worth checking out. Hey, we don't even need to talk about Frances McDormand now because I'm going to save all my Nomadland talk for when we get to Best Picture. Best Actor, and, and we need to pick up the pace. So let's do let's do what I suggested at the beginning, and let's just do quick hits. Quick all hits. All right, Scott? <laughs> Scott, can you do that? Why are you looking cool. at me? You guys have been saying the same as me. Yeah, it's more me. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm not used to... <laughs> our podcasts are normally like three hours, so I'm not used to quick hits. I'm so sorry. That's okay. All right. For Best Actor, the nominees are Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Steven Yeun for Minari. This is this was weird because, our okay, our consensus pick was Riz Ahmed. I, I am very positive on like three of these and then okay on the other two. But I know that we also need to mention Chadwick Boseman who is basically blazing his way through the awards and picking them all up one by one. So let's let's start, Scott. Sell us on Chadwick Boseman in quick hits. <laughs> I can. And um, for this category, I can I can quickly say number five was Steven Yeun. Number four was Gary Oldman. Number three was Anthony Hopkins. Number two was Riz Ahmed. And number one was Chadwick Boseman. Obviously, I love Marmaine's Black Bottom. 
I felt Chadwick Boseman's loss deeply, and I'm sure not even half as deeply as so many other fans of his. I think part of the reason that in terms of picking Oscar winners, I think he's worthy because, good Lord, his career was so excellent and is worthy of having an Oscar attached to it in, in the history of movies. But also his performance as Levy is just brilliant work. And Levy as a character is so complicated and and so messy and gray as a person because he too is navigating the space of knowing that he has little power as a, a black man in the early 20th century in America and wants to use what he can to get what he can. And it's, it's not a bad desire to have his music be made, which is what his central desire is in the movie. But he also obviously makes mistakes, does bad things. And the end of the movie and what his character does is heartbreaking. And it's so different from other Bozeman performances where he's playing someone like T'Challa, the Black Panther, this, this icon, this superhero. Levy is so different and so morally gray. And I thought it was just incredible work bringing this character to life who was so sympathetic despite the negative things that he does and giving Chadwick an opportunity to give amazing speeches that will surely be featured in his Oscar clip at the ceremony and and just being a little bit more chaotic than he is normally allowed to be where he's more composed and stately. So I was a huge fan of his work in this movie. Honestly, if he hadn't tragically passed, I might have given my number one spot to Riz Ahmed, who is incredible in Sound of Metal, but I had to go with Chadwick Boseman at number one, partially because of that tragic loss. I, I love Chadwick Boseman's performance. I mean, for me, it was Riz Ahmed at one, Stephen Yun at two, Chadwick Boseman at three, Anthony Hopkins at four, and Gary Oldman at five. And again, the top three of those, I think, are incredible. Now, Riz Ahmed... <laughs> it, it's it's weird in that I don't think I've heard anyone throughout any of the podcasts or anyone who's seen this movie give him a bad review for this performance because it's not really possible. And it's a very conventional movie that I think is just a very perfect movie and perfectly cast. Riz Ahmed is doing a, a what's the best way to say this? It's one of those where he's realizing that he's not a broken individual. He's realizing that there's nothing wrong with him. And that journey of like self-hatred until there's no more self-hatred left or that he can finally start to stop that is incredible. Keenan, what are your thoughts? I uh, did not see Chadwick Boseman, so I can't rank him, but I got Gary Oldman at four, Stephen Yen at three, Riz Ahmed at two, and Anthony Hopkins at number one. I could switch between Anthony Hopkins and Riz Ahmed. They're pretty much tied for me. And the interesting thing is they're polar opposites. Anthony Hopkins' performance is spectacular. The fact this guy's in his 80s and he is still killing it is incredible. You look at so many actors that phone it in once they hit a certain age. Anthony Hopkins is putting in work when he should be watching Matlock reruns and sitting on the couch with a bowl of oatmeal. This guy is spectacular. And he just killed it in uh, The Two Popes last year. So it's like, man, he is crushing it. The thing is, uh, in no way at all am I saying uh, he he it wasn't hard what he did in The Father. It was incredibly difficult. But I feel like just analyzing it, what Riz Ahmed did in a performance like that is actually harder. I think it's harder to play a character like that. Anthony Hopkins' performance was 
incredible, but a little bit more like one note is definitely not the right word, but it's almost like once he slipped into that mode, you could just kind of stay in that mode of being like, does that make sense? Of, of like a little bit like, oh, just the way he played it. Whereas Riz Ahmed, it's like he had to do a lot of different stuff in that movie. And I feel like that's just harder to convey emotions when it's not as upfront in your face with what's going on. Obviously, the Oscars love people who are playing characters with some kind of disability or grave illness. And as far as those kinds of performances go, I think both Ahmed and Hopkins are absolutely brilliant in terms of the performances they're giving. It's just obviously the year of, of Chadwick, the year of uh, of reckoning with his legacy. Um, but I can't complain with this this bunch of nominees. Even, you know, Stephen Yun is my number five performance. And, and still, I, I loved all of these actors and what they offered to the movies they were in. Real quick, Stephen Yun was incredible. The fact this is Glenn from The Walking Dead, who has now transitioned into giving performances like this, I couldn't believe it. He was commanding. He was a dominating leading man. He was so charismatic, so empathetic. You felt for him. And I just, I want to see more of him. I feel like this is the type of guy who should blow up now. I want to see him in everything. I know he's going to be in Jordan Peele's next movie, which is going to be huge. I just want to see him get all the work and get all these opportunities to show what he can do because he was great in Minari. Hi there. My name is Maddie Johnson and The Trial of the Chicago 7, I felt like was a great movie, just the intertwining of comedy and history, and also the way that the characters just work together, the different personalities. I'm a big fan of Eddie Redmayne, <laughs> and I love um, movies that are about trials um, and really historical events that have kind of an outcome. To Kill a Mockingbird is another one of my favorites, so just really enjoyed the intertwining of historical and comedy together to make this really interesting commentary on you know the the power of democracy and the importance of our justice system here in the U.S. as it has been important and um, will continue to be. Christian how are we doing with the uh, quick hits how's that going? Good but we're gonna go quicker. (laughs) Let's hit best director then. Hey, I need a good 30 minutes for Nomadland, so let's carve that time out. So, okay, Best Director. Now, here's the thing. Best Director, the nominees are Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round, David Fincher for Mink, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, and Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. We each had a different number one. Perfect. So we're not going to give our lists. We're going to say our number ones and say why they were our number ones. Also, our number ones, none of them won. Our number twos won. We each had the same number two, and that was Emerald Fennell from Promising Young Woman, who won our consensus. So give me why you had your number one. I will start. My number one was Lee Isaac Chung from Minari. Loved it. Loved it. In the sense that the ability to maintain the tension and the fragility of that family throughout the entire run without having it slip or go too far into this family is broken or too far back into it being boring, I thought was astounding. Scott, who did you choose as your number one? 
Honestly, I ranked Lee Isaac Chung low on this group of five nominees, and I regretted it immediately because I, I, I really loved his movie. But I ultimately went with Chloe Zhao, and it's not necessarily reflective of how much I appreciated Nomadland, but I think Chloe Zhao is a really, really exciting talent coming to the mainstream. I had the chance to see her second movie, The Rider, at the Telluride Film Festival and, and see her with an interview with the cast. And now I've got to see Nomadland, which I'm hoping to rewatch before the ceremony on Sunday. And I just think that she is an amazing new filmmaker, and I'm excited for her take on Eternals coming up with the MCU. Ultimately, although I didn't love the movie as much as I loved some of the other movies up for Best Picture, I think that she crafted a beautiful tribute to this lifestyle, um, to the nomads, got some incredible performances out of non-professional actors, uh, while also making a cohesive statement on, on life in America, especially post the recession that her movie is set right after the 2008 recession. And there is, there is much to Nomadland. I know it's connected with others more than it's connected with me, but when I was considering the best directed movie from this batch, um, she was the one that stood out uh, among the pack. So I went with Chloe Zhao. Keenan. I went with uh, my boy Thomas Vinterberg from uh, Another Round. I love this movie so much. I wish I could gush about it, but it's not really up for anything we're talking about. Uh, but man alive, I feel like his direction like made the movie. Obviously, performances were fantastic, but this is a movie about a group of middle-aged friends who decide to uh, start raising their blood alcohol content and drinking daily just to see if it kind of spices up their life and gets them back to their uh, old selves when they were full of life and vigor and all that good stuff. And on the surface, this could be very like goofy and very like why, what is happening? But his direction is so like sure-footed. Like he know he, he has such a command on the story and it's like he can slip so easily between comedy and in like heartbreaking, real raw moments. And I feel like the camera work, the close-ups, just a lot of the shots of just like daily life playing out. I mean, it's it's everything you would want. I feel like he made this movie. Um, in, in lesser hands, it would have been either forgettable or a joke. And finally, we come to Best Picture. I don't know how to do this one, but we're gonna, I'm gonna make it up as I go. Now, Best Picture. The nominees for the 93rd Academy Awards are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. If we are to go again based on our consensus, the highest ones that we all had ranked together should be no surprise is Minari. But I, it's interesting to think of what are the films that we have not yet talked about and we've sung Minari's praises the entire time. So, Keenan, talk about your hatred of Nomadland. Here's the thing real quick, guys. Nomadland, no exaggeration, one of my most hype movies. I even told you when I listened to your older podcast, when you had mentioned, Christian, you saw Nomadland. I was so jealous. I was like, man, alive. I've wanted to see this for so long. Um, this movie's right up my alley. It speaks to me. It's about, like, kind of wanderers and just trying to find your place, and it's about, like, uh, the part of the country that I feel like is I, I feel most alive in, which is kind of the the desert vibes of the uh, you know Western 
uh, whether it's Arizona, Utah, California, all these beautiful vistas and just... Um, it was really speaking to me. Chloe Zhao, I hadn't seen anything she'd done before. I knew she was doing Eternals from Marvel, which I was really excited about, and I knew she had a lot of buzz from this movie. Trailer looked beautiful, so I was excited. I watched this, uh, a couple nights ago, and I didn't like it, but as I thought about it more and more, I started actively disliking it, and kind of like, getting angry at it for how how bad I thought like genuinely bad I thought it was it's to me this is like this is like indie movie the movie right like this is the textbook example of when people talk to me and I'm, I'm you know I'm just speaking from my own hatred but when people talk about like the Oscars and like things that turn them off and like oh my gosh this pretentious this movie was that in a nutshell. To me, Chloe Zhao should have made a documentary. If you want to make a movie about nomads, you want to have real people telling what I have to believe are somewhat real stories, um, why don't you just make a documentary? I thought Frances McDormand, who I love, was not good. Like She was not likable. She was an incredibly off-putting character to me. She had no range. I just felt like she was very... like. One note, the whole movie, you never really latched onto her. I never really understood her motivation. I understood I understood what they told me her motivation was. But then we get some backstory about how when she was a younger, like she never really felt like at home. And I, maybe that's the point, but I, I just, I didn't like her character. I didn't like the fact you could start the movie at the end and play it in reverse. And it's literally, it wouldn't make a difference. It's like a series of montages of like, Let's show Frances McDormand brushing her teeth. Now she's going to the bathroom. Now she's floating in a river. Now she's talking to some random person about how to like change a tire. It's just one of those things where it's like, I understand the slice of life vibe that you're trying to give off, but there is no energy to this movie. It is just dead. It just feels like a dead thing. And it's beautiful to look at, but it's like Chloe's out like, you did a good job of setting up a camera in Utah and filming the sunset. Like, that's awesome. It looked beautiful. But it has no life to it. There's no energy. There's no movement. It's just, like, nothing. Like I, I, When Scott said he was going to rewatch it, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I honestly couldn't imagine going back in and, like, watching this movie again. It was just so flat to me. Uh, so I'm still excited about Chloe Zhao as far as visuals go. I hope she can bring some of that real-world like scenery and, and shots to Eternals, but I don't know, like everything else about it was just flat. I did though, I will give some praise to the music. Those piano instrumentals, I'm a sucker for those. And every time those kicked in, I was like, I'm feeling it, even though I'm not feeling anything else. Scott, why don't you talk to us about Judas and the Black Messiah? Because you have it <laughs> ranked very highly. I do. I feel like I'd need to engage with the Nomadland discourse. I was, but... <laughs> was going to say, was there going to be any response to that? I know we're running late, but... Uh... Uh, and just in terms, you know, a little bit... We can! A little bit of on-air... I like the movie. On-air production meeting for those listening. You know, we, we try to keep this within a certain time limit, so we're trying not to go too... Now, long. we have surpassed... We have far surpassed... The past month! I would just say, Nomadland of this list of Best Picture nominees is actually at the bottom of the list for me, even though I still liked it. And I feel bad about that. I had really high expectations and was slightly let down. I would want to watch it again to see if, with without those expectations, I might think differently. 
I really, really liked Judas and the Black Messiah. I know many others did. It has its detractors, especially for people who were frustrated at the Hollywoodized portrayal of Fred Hampton, who was obviously a revolutionary, as that famous scene from the trailer would have you reminded. And also some people who felt that Lakeith Stanfield's character, this real-life Judas, so to speak, who helped set up Fred Hampton and his eventual assassination, was frustratingly unknowable and shifty and impossible to place, and, and therefore you can't feel for him. And I really disagreed with that. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I wish that Lakeith had been nominated in the leading category, though I wouldn't have given it to him with uh, all the other great performances we had. He's quickly becoming one of my favorite young actors working today because he he elevates any movie that he's in just by being in it because he's an incredible performer. And his performance in this movie, I think, is on par with Daniel Kaluuya. And I'm glad that they both had the chance to be recognized by the Academy because they are so good. Kaluuya with the the powerful and influential leader in Fred Hampton that he's playing, the man who can get up in front of a crowd and command them all to declare that they're revolutionaries, and they do so with gusto. And Lakeith Stanfield, I I mean, <laughs> shame on me because I had forgotten his character's name. Lakeith Stanfield playing Bill O'Neill, this FBI informant who has joined the Black Panthers and is struggling with his commitment to both sides this person who is trying to live in between, who's trying to take what he can and get ahead where he can, who is not super knowable because obviously he's not a public figure. He's not wearing all of his emotions on his sleeves. I think Stanfield has that quality to play that mysterious character and play it well so that you feel for him and empathize for him despite the fact that he's doing things you don't agree with because you realize that Fred Hampton is just as interested in feeding the poor as he is in dealing with unfair policing and racist policing and and yet he was assassinated regardless. And Judas and the Black Messiah as a movie could have been a very boring and bland biopic but with its performances and with its electrifying direction, I think, from Shaka King, really brings that story to life. And so, obviously, any movie will have its detractors. Even Nomadland couldn't escape Keen disliking it. But I, I know that I'm in a, a maybe a dwindling majority when it comes to Judas and the Black Messiah. But it was, of this group, uh, my second favorite from all that I got to see. I, I was a pretty big fan. And... Uh, I don't think it's it's set to win uh, in terms of Best Picture, but I'm glad that it is among the nominees. And I'll just say from these, um, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about Sentimental a little bit more. Now, Scott, your number one was Minari, and uh, Keenan, your number one was Promising Young Woman. We've spent a lot of time with those. I'll just spend a second talking about Sound of Metal. I do think out of all of these, if there's a perfect movie, it's Sound of Metal. And I don't think that it's trying to be a perfect movie. I just think that it is. I don't think it's trying to hit too lofty of a goal. I don't think it's trying to tell too complicated of a story. I think that the writing and the directing were just, this is something that happened to someone. And the revelation is that it's not a horrible thing that happened to them. It's just a transformative thing that happened. And to be able to get that and to be able to get the performances. And honestly, if you break like the... The groundbreaking use of sound and sound editing. We didn't get to the sound category. I'm so disappointed. You're going to stop right there. Hey, we didn't get to the best animated short category. I like Sound of Metal. 
And if I could choose a winner, I would choose Side of Metal. It's not as innovative, I think, as some of these other categories, but I think that's what helped it. It's it's not a small movie. It's just it just knows what its strengths are and hits them. I think Sound of Metal. Uh, hey, well, let's extend this even. I'm going to talk for 20 minutes about Sound of Metal. No, I'm joking, <laughs> Christian. But I was going to say I think Sound of Metal is something that to me, when I when it wrapped up, it all clicked. There were times during it I was a, it was a little wandering and a little bit like, where is this going? But I feel like when you saw the conclusion, how it wrapped up, it was like yes, perfect bow on a on that present. Sound of Metal is definitely an amazing movie and one that doesn't always get recognized by the Academy in terms of its scale. Obviously, being an indie movie, it was released in 2019 unofficially at film festivals, and it took a long time to build up the recognition it needed, and it landed with a Best Picture nomination. And I, again, an incredible movie. I have no complaints there. So kudos um, to Darius Martyr, the director, and, and everyone who helped bring that movie together. Guys, we did it. We went through it. We did it. Keenan, thank you for being hey, here. It was a blast. We didn't even get to destroy Mank, Christian. I know we were looking <laughs> forward to uh, attacking Scott for that. We'll have to save that for a separate episode. What did I do? I mean, <laughs> we we are going to have a post-Oscar show episode if you would like to join us for that. Yeah, Keenan, come hey, back. Dave, hey, we can unpack it. Hey, hey, David Fincher, who did you make this movie for other than yourself? People who like the movies, Keenan. Sorry, Christian. I got I started. Okay. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It was a blast. It was fantastic. Uh, apologies to Chloe Zhao, but uh, everyone else, we had a good time, and, uh, you know, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Keenan, a true true quick hit. Just one, one movie, one nomination. Any other awards, any other movies you care to shout out in terms of the categories we didn't get to? No, but I will say this. I do think this is not a joke. I do think it was crazy that tom holland was not nominated for cherry because that movie was kind of all over the place and had some highs and lows but his performance was like beyond what was deserved from that movie like he gave so much of himself to that role and it's like man the russos kind of did him dirty but it was a showcase for what he can do a cherry stunk so i have no complaints anyway christian (laughs) a collective the romanian documentary nominated for Best International Feature Film and for Best Documentary, I think is incredible. I think it's so sad. And it talks about the Romanian healthcare system. I watched it and I didn't, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I think it's great. And I think it's on Hulu. So everyone should check it out. Scott. I definitely got to catch up with that one. There is one movie I'm pulling for in a big way in Best Costume Design and Best Makeup and Hairstyling. And that is none other than Autumn DeWilde's Emma. Need to get some Emma representation on this Oscar show. I wanted to win those two awards so bad. I'm really pulling for it. I wish we could have gotten to talk about some of the other categories, but I got to fit in some more love for Emma if I can. Let's go, Emma. You wear those costumes. You get that makeup and those hairstyles. We're going to win. Hey, is is Sonic the Hedgehog nominated for Best Visual Effects? Uh, it's sh- Not it this sure year, isn't. but maybe it will be next year. How, how would it be next year? Just, hey, just big, biggest play snub. us off, Scott. B- biggest snub. Biggest snub is Martin Lawrence not getting nominated for Bad Boys for Life. You know, there I are some other snubs that. we could talk about. Alas, our Oscars pre-Oscars show must come to an end. A huge thank you to Keenan Culler for joining us. You record a certain show with a certain family member of yours. So, Keenan, why don't you plug that show real quick before we play off the rest of our show? 
Yeah, we have a podcast called the Hollywood Week Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Hollywood underscore week, or we have a Facebook group page. If you just search Hollywood Week, it's a good time. Um, check us out. And hey, that's the name of the podcast too, the Hollywood Week Podcast. It's all right there. Keenan and his brother Kaysen have a, a great interplay there on the show. I, I like to think of you guys as sort of an odd couple. Kaysen's a little bit more buttoned up and put together, and you're a little more freewheeling. You guys bring out the best in each other. I love it. So again, that is our show. If you've reached this point, thanks so much for listening along. I know I appreciate you, and Christian's going to murder me because I couldn't keep it quick. But you have listened along with us, and so we thank you for it. There are a couple things you can do to support the show to help us grow and reach new listeners. Number one, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners on all platforms. You can also drop us a line at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. Christian and I would love to know what movie you want to win Best Picture, and we can share those thoughts on a future episode really the next episode or you can also hit us some with some feedback and we'd love to incorporate that into future episodes of this show you can also follow us on twitter at cinema drip or follow christian and myself on letterboxd where we are reviewing and rating the things that we are watching and maybe we can start pressuring keenan to get on letterboxd as well he and Kaysen can join the fray there yes christian any final thoughts for those listening along at home Oscars are this Sunday at 5 p.m. Well, Pacific time. I love living in Pacific time because I don't have to stay up super late to watch the whole ceremony these days. It's great. So once again, Keenan, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. You're officially our favorite color brother. Kaysen is in a distant second until he gets his butt back on this podcast. As he, as he should be. <laughs> so for Keenan Color, that's Christian Ubius, and I'm Scott Lentz, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.